Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hola y bienvenidos to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jaime Sanchez Jr. Today we have the privilege of talking with Dr. Lorena Oropesa about her new book, The King of Adobe, Reyes Lopez Tijerina, Lost Prophet of the Chicano Movement, published by the University of North Carolina Press in September 2019. Oropesa is a professor of history at the University of California at Davis, Lorena, welcome to New Books Latino. Thank you so much, Jaime. So to start things off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to academia? Sure. Um, I'm born in Tucson, Arizona, so I'm not at all a land-grant person from New Mexico. I think that gave me a little bit of distance and a lot of perspective. I was a journalism major as an undergraduate, and I worked for several newspapers, including the Orlando Sentinel. And I transferred to academia. I decided to pursue a PhD in history, um, primarily because journalism, I felt like I was writing about things I didn't know enough about. Um, And this is the one example I always use. I was just out of college when it was the 200th anniversary of the U.S. Constitution, and I had to write um, a story about a bicentennial celebration of the U.S. Constitution. And then I realized I had never read the U.S. Constitution. And I really didn't have an understanding of its significance. And so I was always really curious of not just what was happening of the day, but how we got to this point. I decided to pursue a PhD at Cornell University. I always say that I came to Chicano Chicana history sideways because my major field of study at Cornell was American Empire, the history of American foreign relations. And then my first book was... uh, looking at the intersection of race and foreign policy. It was called um, Raza Si No Chicano Protest and Patriotism during the Vietnam War era. And it looked at how the Chicano movement organized against the Vietnam War as a means of um, really exploring Mexican-American political development since World War II. So when it comes to this book that is the subject of the podcast, I took my journalism background and used interviews and used every writing skill I'd ever accrued. And um, I took my historical training and did some heavy-duty archival research and and brought together the two. So why did you decide to write this biography of Reyes Lopez Tijerina? Um, Why did you decide to write The King of Adobe? At a very instinctual level. I just thought he was fascinating to the extent that Americans know anything about Reyes Lopez Tierina, and he has been largely forgotten. He is um, best known for leading an armed raid on a county courthouse in northern New Mexico in a tiny town called Tierra Maria. And he led this armed raid where um, two people were shot, um, two people were kidnapped, and a deputy sheriff was pistol whipped in order to bring attention to the what, well, in order to bring attention to what he called a crime stinking up the pages of New, Me- New Mexico, namely that there was all sorts of Spanish-speaking people in the state whose family had once owned a lot of land, and they were surviving on an increasingly shrinking land base. So he led an effort to reclaim um, what was called land-grant land, land that had been deeded to Spanish-speaking people by either the Spanish um, crown or the Mexican Republic, But then after the U.S.-Mexico War, it um, quickly became the property of either individual Americans or the U.S. government. So that is how the extent to which people know Reyes Lopez de Arena. They know him for this, really what was almost a singular act of militancy in the 1960s, because there's a lot of protest during the 1960s. It's the era where I focus my research, but very rarely do people actually pick up a gun to make a point. And he did. So... um, 
I found him fascinating, not just because so much attention was focused simply on that raid without very much understanding of how it might have come about, but also because in the course of writing Rasasi, um, I spent time with every, I mean, I read through everything I could on the Chicano movement, every Chicano movement newspaper, every archival document that I could find that somehow intersected with with the Vietnam War. And Tirina gives this great speech in um, after the courthouse raid, where he compare where he when in which he compares um, Nuevo Mexicanos, people who had suffered land disposition as a result of the American conquest of 1848, he compares them directly to the Vietnamese who were suffering an American invasion as a result of the, the war in Southeast Asia. And he says, they, they stole your land, they're trying to steal their land, they raped your culture, they're disregarding the Vietnamese culture. Well, essentially, why are you going to go fight them? Who is the enemy here? And so from that starting point, I thought that there there had to be more to this story than just um, um, one man and one, you know, one day, the, the, the moment of the raid, him leading an armed raid. This man was evidently someone who was thinking in really um, interesting ways about what was the position of Mexican descent people within the United States. And so I started this project wanting to answer and address that question. I think when we think of who is Reyes Lopez de Arena, we have to think of um, someone who is an absolute American original, just like we know like certain names in American history, like Billy the Kid or Harriet Tubman or um, Al Capone. And I'm mentioning Cesar Chavez, I'm mentioning people who are like in the good category and the bad category. We should know Reyes Lopez de Arena, but he doesn't fit in the good or bad category. He is what the Taos News called um, in the review of my book, a complicated anti-hero. And the book really explores all facets of Reyes Lopez de Arena, primarily the extent to which he really challenged our understanding of westward expansion. And way before us academics got around to it, he, as early as the 1950s, he was calling U.S. westward expansion conquest. He was calling land dispossession, land theft, and robbery. And so he had a, a very critical view and analysis of um, American empire. And that's on the, the, the heroic, or I guess the insightful part of the arena. It's hard to call him a hero because he built a land-grant movement based upon um, the subordination and, and exploitation and cruelty towards um, his family members, particularly women his family. His first wife and his eldest daughter um, show up in the book, and they, don't, they not only show up, but they become their stories of abuse of sexual abuse, and allegations of sexual abuse in the, in the case of Rose, his eldest daughter, and allegations of domestic abuse in the case of Maria, or she goes by Mary, Mary Escobar, his first wife, they form the, the fulcrum of, of the book in that they help explain what kind of man he was and what were his priorities. So let's go back to the beginning of this biography. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit about Tijerina's early life and in particular the role of religion in shaping nearly his entire life's trajectory? Yeah, in this book, you're absolutely right. I do call religion his faith like the kaleidoscope. I think I call it, I remember calling it the kaleidoscope that contained all of his conflicting, shifting views. Like you have to hold on to his religious faith and you have to deal with that seriously so that then everything else, as much as he's a, a complicated human being, that is a framework. That's kind of the key that helps you unlock the rest of him. And so if you talk about his early life, faith is the one thing he had. He grew up dirt poor. He grew up eating out of garbage cans. He's born in 1926. So the years that frame his childhood are the years of the Great Depression. And if you are, um, he's born in Texas, so you're at Tejano or Mexicano at this point, you are absolutely a despised person on top of it because you're the, among the group of people, you're the, I'm sorry, you are the, a member of a group that's being you know, chased out of the country for taking away jobs. So he had a, a very difficult life. He, he would go to bed hungry and then the... As a, as a young boy, he lost his mom. 
And his mom was someone who, like, in times of need would say, we need to pray. So he, all he really had was a faith in God. He had no material possessions. He didn't have an education. He didn't have um, a lot of other resources. At, um, as a farm worker, he and his family just traveled from place to place, barely scraping by. And then at the age of 15, he is in Michigan where children are not supposed to be working in the fields. So he's bored, really bored, home all day while the rest of the family's out working, the older kids. And a Baptist minister is knocking door to door, passing out Bibles and trying to even um, be an evangelist, right? Come to my church, learn about Jesus. And Theodina, he had been baptized Catholic. His mom was Catholic. After the mom's death, the dad started taking him to a Pentecostal church in um, the San Antonio area. But he really begins his own individual religious quest, like decides that the Bible is really going to provide him the answer to everything um, at this age of 15. So he reads it cover to cover. He reads it again. By the age of 17, he's enrolled in a Pentecostal Bible school in the outskirts of San Antonio. He spends um, five years working in loose association with the Assemblies of God. And then after that, he decides to go on his own to become an independent preacher. And his view of religion from the beginning is, I don't, I, I think the best way to describe it is extreme. Like you have to get to the, what is it that God wants of us as human beings? But the way he would pose a question to himself is like, what does God want of me? What is going to be my role in God's plan? And we needed to get mm -hmm. closer and closer to God. Um, Eventually, it this this religious quest drives him to become. Um, he decides to found a religious community in Arizona and become. He was very clear he was a prophet, so he's a preacher. Like a preacher is a minister or someone who has a church and preaches the word of God based on the Bible. A prophet is someone who has a direct, like a divine connection, right? So Tirina claimed to his followers that he was a prophet named Irateo, and that. They had to found this religious community and that he was convinced that the end of the world was coming. So this is a really, really um, powerful religious um, a vision that comes and sustains him. Even though that community flounders and flounders quite quickly, that intensity stays with him. And in a lot of ways, you can see his commitment to this desire to regain the land as a, a, a holy crusade as a way to regain that community they had tried to build in Arizona. He was going to, people were going to live in small villages and um, live moral upright lies, lives and, and stay away from American corruption. So that religious vision, it, it's part the religious vision is something, it's a term that Rudy Bustos uses. Um, I think it's a useful one, but it is, um, it's not just about being a prophet or about having faith. It's really how he translates these ideas and places them on the land grant movement, how this becomes his um, Santa Cruzada. Hmm. So how does he transition from this spiritual life to a life of activism and as a leader of an organization? Well, he, I mean, part of the book is he doesn't do it very successfully. I mean, it's really interesting. So part of being trained as a Pentecostal preacher, that man knew how to preach, especially in Spanish. So he brings to the land grant movement, he hear, he knows about it. He knows about it because he spends five years um, crisscrossing the country. Um, even as a Bible student, he travels through New Mexico. He learns about land dispossession in New Mexico early on by the, um, I want to say by 1945, he knows about this history and it strikes him as an injustice. So the transition, um, if you talk to Theodina, it comes in a vision from God. He has what he calls a super dream. And the super dream is what convinces him. Like he hears a voice from above. He sees a an old man in a white robe telling him that he has to go and fight for land-grant justice. That's how he interprets his dream. If you want to like bracket the dream, 
and this was one of the difficulties of this book is how much do you let Theorina tell the story and how much do you try to tell the story, right? Um, if you want to bracket that dream or understand that dream in context, Theorina shows up in New Mexico as a fugitive from the law. Um, and he is just really interested in um, land grant injustice. So just like he pursued his um, desire to be closer to God for five years, and um, I'm sure we'll get to this, but let his family kind of suffer and wait, he is now consumed with this desire to understand land grant. Like, what is the history of the land grants? How is it that people who are given land at one point no longer have it, right? So he spends his first five years, the transition is just studying. He goes to Mexico to find out what he can find. He goes to every library he can to find out what he can find. He just like absorbs all this information. He talks to all the people he can because he sees his role as uncovering the true history of this um, process of land conquest. And so that's part of the tra transition. Um, and it's not until, um, well, does that answer your question? Because I, I mean, the, the scary part about a biography is you can keep, the, the hard part is actually where does he like, there's not these, where does one part end and the other part begin, right? So the transition, I would say, would be um, he's a fugitive from the law. He has to be in hiding anyway. He spends a lot of time in hiding, reading and learning what he can about the land grants. And it's not until he is, the, the statute of limitation is expired that he actually founds the Alianza Federal de Mercedes, his organization where he wants all land grant people from um, dozens and even hundreds of different land grants, because he has a vision of this going across the Southwest to come together in one giant organization that he's going to lead. And so as far as the transition, he brings his, his powerful voice. Um, he brings his intelligence because he develops what I call an anti-colonial thesis that he sees this as an act of conquest. Um, but he also brings, um, the man who wants to seek God or the man who thinks that God directly talks to him, he also brings his powerful personality and his, um, the way I put it is like, if you think God directly talks to you, do you really have to listen to anyone else? Right? So he can be an inspiring orator. He can have a great historical analysis, but as far as the transition, he also brings his, um, what, I mean, I think it's fair to say the defects in his personality. He was a man who it was his way or the highway. And it could, um, there was no tolerance for criticism, no tolerance for disagreement, um, and little skill at negotiation or compromise. So it seems that this preacher turned protest uh, leader organization, figurehead, mm -hmm. uh, public speaker. I think that gets to my next question, which is your book poses a major historical intervention mm -hmm. aimed at the history of protest politics in the 1960s. One of my favorite parts in the introduction reads as follows. You say, quote, Tijerina's absence in our memory of the era also reflects just how much the black-white binary still dominates the study of race in the United States. Histories of the civil rights movement, read as black, and histories of the anti-war movement, read as mainly white, dominate, end quote. How does this, the telling of the story of Tijerina and his organization, La Alianza Federal de Mercedes, or the Federal Alliance of Land Grants, complicate the mainstream understanding of civil rights and protest politics in the 60s? It one thing I think that it does is, and this is a central um, thesis of the book, is that I don't. I think that the arena has been ignored for too long, and when I say anti-colonial thesis, I think this man with, as I say in another part of the book, with his third grade education and his Bible, really put forth a powerful thesis of American empire, and so today I did participate. Um, in a recent volume called Formations of U.S. Colonialism. And the central thesis of that volume, the editor was um, Alyosha Goldstein, who's at the University of New Mexico, a, a friend and a brilliant scholar. 
The central thesis of all the contributors together is that American empire across, it was American empire across the continent as it was an American empire in the Philippines or in Puerto Rico or in Vietnam. That this is all, whether you're expanding across the continent or having a military intervention overseas, this is all part of the American empire project. And Theodina saw those connections. He placed um, people of Mexican descent, he thought their closest allies were Native Americans as victims of American empire. So what he is doing is, is, is like seeing, reading the American past in a way that scholars are just now catching up to, right? This is a more recent development in American scholarship. And he saw it. So that critical analysis, I think, is a really important intervention. And if you just see him as a guy who was solely concerned about land grants or picked up um, a gun one day on June 5th, 1967, you're ignoring his um, what that land grant movement did more broadly, because it was a, a change maker in terms of capturing attention and directing it to land grants, but then prompting Americans more broadly to take a critical look at their own nation's past. So I think that's one critical in intervention that he makes. Another is um, for, I think that, I think what happens is that because we tend to, that sentence that you read, it also says that, that black, as far, if you look at the literature more broadly, black civil rights goes to black power. And that's supposedly a bad thing. And there's some, recent books that are starting to challenge that. But for a long time, that's the case. And if you look at white protests, like anti-war, you start with participatory democracy at SDS, you end up with the weather, man, and that's bad. So there's this this idea that that the 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 protest of the 1960s like starts with inspiration and hope and then it turns into identity politics, it turns into violence, it turns into stuff that needs to be disregarded, and then we move on. And I have never believed that. I, I just don't, I'm just not in accord with that sentiment. And I think that looking at what um, land-grant people in New Mexico accomplished, how they forced attention to this problem, I think that's also an accomplishment. And I think it it also looks, if you're looking at Tirina specifically, how closely he set out to create alliances with Black people, with Native Americans, with um, white people too. So that there's a, like, you, like the, the window, we keep looking at the past in this very specific window that sort of, that sort of, not sort of, but that ignores Chicanos, quite frankly, that ignores Mexican Americans. Like if they are, if they're, if they're there in the 1960s, they're going to be separated, right? And they were in the mix. And so part of what the book does, and I think it works at two levels, is I want um, an understanding of the American West and to include Theodina and to include how Theodina contributed to our understanding of the American West. But I also want our understanding of the 1960s to include Mexican-Americans not as a they're not as these um, separate silos where there's Asian Americans and African Americans and Native Americans, but really how these people swapped ideas and got together at protests and worked together or didn't work together. That is like a, a fuller, more, more um, accurate understanding of that really tumultuous era. And then to recapture what came out of it. That's a, so that instead of um, dismissing it, dealing with it. And when you're looking at the courthouse raid, I am not, um, you know, the, I'm not a fan of violence. I mean, I study anti-war protesters, right? That's where I started. But the truth is that Dirina spent a lot of time like writing letters and trying to like prove what a good, there's a chapter called the American because he was trying to prove what a good American he was. No one in DC, no one in New Mexico, no one in the nation paid attention to what were really legitimate grievances until the courthouse raid. And so the book also prompts a question like, what role does violence take? Like, it's, it's almost like in the, the black civil rights movement, you could have people die, but if they're black, no one paid attention. You had to have white people die and then, whoa, people paid attention. You had to have New Mexicans pick up a gun and whoa, finally people pay attention. 
So it it does force us to, and I understand why we as a society automatically gravitate towards um, people who preach nonviolence. And sometimes you can preach it and not follow it. That's another complication. But we, I understand politically. I understand actually just sympathetically that might be where I'm at. But you can't look at the Tiarina, can't look at Tiarina, and you can't look at the people in the Alianza without understanding um, where. Or at least without questioning what is what is the role of violence in these movements and does it ever have a positive impact hmm. I think that uh, another one of the many contributions your book brings to the fore is the comprehensive analysis of gender roles mm -hmm. looking at how the sacrifices and the action of women made Tijerina's organization La Alianza uh, and the land movement, the land grant movement in general, possible. Could you tell us a bit about the women in Tijerina's life? Sure, sure. I can talk about the women in Tijerina's life. It does bring us back to his faith. So Tijerina, as a student of the Bible, he loved the Old Testament. Um, he loved this uh, the first time. Well, let me back up a little bit. So I thought that I was going to write this, you know, kind of uncover an anti-colonial movement in the continental United States. That's what I that's what I thought I was doing. And what happened is that very quickly, because I know people who know people, this is how scholarship and especially oral history works, I ended up interviewing Mary Escobar, his first wife, and then Rose Tierina, his eldest daughter. And eventually I interviewed Rachel Tierina, his next eldest daughter, who just died recently this month. And I interviewed um, Reyes himself. And so what happened is that upon interviewing these women, they weren't talking so much about an anti-colonial thesis. They really believed in the land grant movement. They were strong supporters. But what they shared with me is a, a, like the backstory, the, the story before the Alianza is founded. And it is a story of incredible woe. So if you have a dad who's going to seek God and seek God, those are Mary Escobar's words, He's not someone who's going to provide for his family. And he actually didn't care about that. Um, if you have someone who believes that God is telling him what to do, well, some of the things that God told him what to do is that women should be seen and not heard. And if they speak up, there's a heavy hand that women have to be extremely modest. So that if, um, you know, the, the, the one of the first stories that Rose tells me is that she was sitting down as a little girl on her skirt. She really tried to make sure her skirt didn't go above her knee, but um, it did, and and or her brother said it did, and her dad found out, and she is beaten, and she knows that if she cries out, she's going to um, get more of a beating. So it's really sad today. She still says over and over again, "I can't cry for Rachel." She learned not to cry. So there's a there's a brutality and a cruelty to Theodina. And it's interesting. Some people will read the book and see the harshness of his childhood. You know, trauma like it carries forth through the generations. But he himself never mentions being beaten. Um, he he um, never mentions his dad as a philanderer. And when you start looking into the the, the personal side of Theodina, he is both a heavy-duty philanderer and someone who um, acts really cruelly towards his children. And so then the question became, really, what the hell does this matter? What the hell does this have to do with land grants? How far away from an anti-colonial thesis am I, right? And for the longest time, the difficulty I had was marrying it all together, or even putting a putting putting these stories in a place. So, um, and I know I was advised by several people actually, like they don't, they don't belong here at all. Like it somehow the fear was you mentioned this, this aspect of Theodina's life. And then what happens is he becomes more of a, a strange character, which becomes more of a reason to dismiss the land grant movement entirely. And there's nothing in me that wanted to do that. And then I thought maybe the thing is to like separate these allegations because it's, this is the trouble with oral history, right? Is like, how much can we know? Can we separate these allegations 
and put it maybe in an oral history piece and then have the real book about the Adina's politics. And that to me just seemed like a fraudulent proposition because here I am, I mean, the central, the central, um, a central point of the book is that Theodina is challenging our understanding of how we understand the American Western history. That's what this man did, right? He says, no, 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 it's not manifest destiny. It's not how we won the West. It's not a triumphant narrative. It is conquest, dispossession, and American empire, right? Because he's looking at it from a different perspective. So I credit Theodina for this insight as early as the 1950s, again, all on his own with his Bible and him going to the library trying to figure things out. So how can I credit him for like challenging a conventional narrative or what was a conventional narrative of American westward expansion and then not like remain mum or absolutely silent on something that challenges Theodina's role as a Chicano movement hero, right? It, it just seemed, it seemed like I, I couldn't do one without the other. And I also think that's why there's been so little written about the arena. Like the courthouse raid is in 67, and then there's a few books that show up um, right afterwards. And then he shows up, I think I can say, in three books, um, none of which deal with his um, personal life. But in, in overall, there's a great silence. And the great silence is that everyone in New Mexico knows, or not everyone, because not everyone knows about the arena, but people who know about the arena understand he's a notorious figure. And I was talking to a, a, a man in New Mexico who's um, Jacobo Vaca, and he says, the problem with the arena is the closer you get, the less you like him. He looks really good from afar. Courthouse raid, you stole our land, you should give it back. There was a treaty, like now the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo is in the history books, right? But when you get closer, autocratic, demanding, uncompromising, cruel, um, this is this is the part of the arena that's harder to deal with. So, and it's a part that I had via the oral history interviews. Rose accuses her father of um, sexual abuse, and so Mary accuses him of physical abuse, and so for me. Again, it was a problem of how do you marry the, the political and the personal. And what I decided to do, and it took a while, um, I couldn't ignore it, and I didn't want to segregate it in a separate book or a separate article, and I mostly, I couldn't look away. I couldn't pretend it didn't happen. So what I did, it took years but what happened eventually, and what I did was to realize that his treatment of women is one way to unlock who Theodina was. Like, you really have to understand that uh, the subordination of women was fundamental to his ideal community. And his land grant movement was in part a movement to reclaim this ideal community, to make his Arizona community was called Valle de Paz, Valley of Peace. It was to make Valley of Peace a reality. But his vision of Valley of Peace, I mean, he had women dressed in long dresses. He had them, like, essentially do what he said. So when it comes to that switch from being foremost a, a, a preacher or a prophet of God to being foremost known as a land-grant activist, these women are doing what he said, and that means that they are the ones who are, first of all, supporting Theorina. Mary Escobar, his first wife, when he's a fugitive, and he says, like, oh my gosh, instead of seeking God and seeking God, I have to seek the answer to how this land-grant disposition occurred. He's a fugitive for five years. Who the hell is supporting him? And six kids? It's Mary Escobar. She is the one who gives him what is essentially a five-year sabbatical to become an expert on land-grant injustice, right? And because he is a man who puts women in a particular place, um, at least, I mean, this is an interesting contribution from Maria Sklavad. She says that after she had a hysterectomy, um, she was no longer useful to him. And he started saying when he went to New Mexico, he needed a, that 
all wives should be 20 years younger than the man. And, um, and ideally he would be married to a land grant, um, a woman who had a claim to a land as a, a member of a family that one's own land called land. He called them land grant heirs. It's still a term that's used in New Mexico. And so he does end up divorcing Mary Escobar just one month after the Alianza is founded. And that is one reason why she really does not show up in the literature. Even those, even after 67, those few um, pieces of um, academic work that talk about the arena, she's not there. He doesn't even get to be who he is except for her labor. And then when he divorces her, she is still the secretary of the Alianza. She's still holding together the office. <coughs> Sorry. Um, she, she understands, and this is from her telling, that the divorce is really for show, but as a divorced woman, she can get money from the state to support her children and that she can actually give Tirina some of this money to support the Alianza. And that's what Mary Escobar says that she does. And that's what archival documents in the Tirina collection show, that she's sending him money. So she sees this divorce as a, as like a, an economic move until Tirina comes home with a new wife. And then she realizes, okay, this is not, this is like, I'm out of here. Like what She calls herself a big tonta, a big dummy. Like I'm done. But the, the, the thing is when she steps back, Rose steps forward to be the secretary of the Alianza. And one reason is because um, the second wife isn't capable of this sort of work. So Rose is the one who is attending meetings and taking membership lists and um, answering correspondence and making sure her dad knows what the calendar is. Like Her name is on so many documents holding the Alianza together in an informal role as secretary, as a secretary to this organization. Uh, and she is predisposed or trained to do what her dad tells her to do because as a child to go against what he says was dangerous. She would get beaten. and she, they, But she's not the only child who remembers a heavy hand. Noel Tiarina, the youngest child, has an oral history interview um, that says exactly the same thing. So beyond that, Rose recalls as soon as the Alliance is founded that her dad takes her to Mexico and then tells her that he needs to train her body so she won't feel emotions. And that's why I say that it's this this um, particularly um, extreme emphasis on women's modesty, his 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 idea of what is right and proper in his religious view, because it's that this is all about not being a sexual being, not, not enjoying sex. He's going to train her body so that she, when she gets married, she will, she'll know what's what and know how to behave with her husband. So she accuses him of touching her intimately. He, and I did interview him, says it's all bullshit. You know, and there's a certain, there's a certain point where, the evidence, I have two oral history interviews that say contrary things, and then I have archival documents that when you go through it very carefully in this whole book, it's sentence by sentence, was written with such care, the allegations carry weight. And even though we will never know exactly what happened between these two people in, in Mexico um, on a certain night or on many nights, according to Rose, we do know... Um, how Reyes Tierina treated women. And so instead of seeing this as something that's apart and unimportant, how he treated women is really, um, the, the way I explained it in the book is that he, the Alianza was a family operation. The Alianza Federal de Mercedes was a family operation. And he ran that operation, not that he sexually abused the members, but he he was that patriarch. He was going to tell people what was what, and there was no going against it. And so as brilliant as his historical insights might be, his ability to run an organization, that he didn't have. That he needed, for the day-to-day -day mechanics, he needed to rely on women, um, none of whom he ever paid. 
Like Rose worked for that organization for 10 years. She never gets a paycheck. Um, and it was like, God is talking through me. I have a vision. This is it. And it was enough to inspire people, but it wasn't really anything to build an organization upon. It wasn't helpful when it came to political strategy. I think it's interesting how the through lines of Tijerina's life, or at least the things that he knows for sure, um, are his religious conviction or his extreme religious uh, beliefs and his uh, kind of fundamental belief in the subordination of women. But one of the things that seems to flip-flop or change dramatically is his complex racial and ethnic identity. Um, as the book progresses along with the Hedina's life, uh, it's clear that there's kind of code switching between different labels and identities. You know, you have Mexican, a forthright American, an Indo-Hispano, and ultimately a Chicano. How did the evolution of his racial subjectivity map on to perhaps broader transitions in Mexican-American self-identification generally? Oh, that's a good question. That's really interesting. Um, and it, it points to um, one of the challenges of writing this book is that man it's not that what people have written about him is wrong. It's that they, and I'm not, I mean, this is a broad statement, but oftentimes when people write about the arena, they'll pick a sentence that he says and it supports their argument, right? The problem is he would say exactly the opposite of that sentence if they'd only looked 10 years before or 10 years afterwards. So he is a man that is um, often described as mercurial and that works. So the way in the book that I handled this complicated human being, there's these through lines that we've mentioned, but his changeable nature was to break it up into 10 small chapters. And you're absolutely right. Or 10, I don't know if they're that small, but 10 specific chapters. And so um, you're absolutely right that, that some of them have what seem to be contradictory names. There's a chapter called the Mexican. There's a chapter called the American. There's a chapter called the Indospano and the chapter called the Chicano. And as far as how it maps onto Mexican uh, American identity or politics or or Chicano um, broadly conceived twentieth century politics, um, I think it's interesting that the arena. If you when you, I mean, I did speak to him in twenty ten. He was a man. He's born in Texas. He grows up in a Spanish speaking environment. He's his whole life is with other farm workers. He has a really strong sense of Mexican identity. And it makes sense both because he's a fugitive running for the law and Mexico's far away. And because Spanish is his home, like that's his home. His kids grew up in the United States, but they grew up in a Spanish speaking home. He um, runs to Mexico and it is in Mexico that he really thinks critically about the war. I think there's a lot of um, um, people in the United States who really come from a Mexican ancestry where you have um, being Mexican as like their first cultural resource, um, sometimes they're only, and sometimes they're only political resource. So that makes sense, especially um, as someone who grew up in the 30s um, when uh, it was a, you know, the anti-Mexican sentiment was running so high. So that I think maps nicely. And there's also, many scholars have talked about the Mexican-American generation coming out of World War II. He is really good at, um, when after he founds the Alianza, he can, he can out-talk, he could out-talk in English or Spanish, most people. That man knew how to talk. And so he starts really pressing for constitutional rights, because he always made the point that the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was signed by both nations. So he was holding Mexico, not just looking to Mexico to develop an anti-colonial thesis, but holding Mexico accountable. Hey, you said you were going to protect us. And then when he becomes an American in English, holding the United States accountable. Hey, you said you were going to protect our land. And he does it in this um, almost flowery um, language of petition, which is really common of the era. Right, you are petitioning for your rights as American citizens. 
he tries really hard. Unfortunately for Theodina, the only people in D.C., the only agency that pays attention to him is the FBI, who sees him as a Mexican, as a dangerous radical. And these are overlapping categories, right, to J. Edgar Hoover. So he is eventually, um, if petition in, if traveling to Mexico doesn't work, right, and petitioning the United States doesn't work, he cannot get any traction. Everyone always dismisses him as um, a dreamer, as um, someone who's following a preposterous goal, as someone who's not, you know, needs to forget about what happened way back when. Come on, get, 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 get with reality. Um, he moves from petition, which doesn't help with in either nation, to protest. And this is when he starts holding um, what other people, I mean, I've been to conferences and people say, like, wasn't he just a loon? He ends up taking over uh, with a with a bunch of people in the Alianza, which is in in um, a, a portion of Kit Carson National Park in October 1966, and he renames it um, the the Republic of San Joaquin del Rio del Chama. So he takes over um, Echo the Echo Amphitheater. It's a portion of Kit Carson National Park. And he just says, it's, no, 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 it's not. It's a republic. And the republic's name is Don Joaquin de Lula Chama. And he's going to be the attorney general of this republic. And they have him flag. And then they arrest two forest rangers for trespassing. And um, some people look at this protest and say, he's just a crazy guy. Um, but it, I think it's a brilliant act of political theater. But it's also around this time that he develops, um, not only is protesting like what's going on politically at the United States at this moment, but he also develops a new identity. He says, we are Indo-Hispanos. So he spends time, first of all, claiming a connection to Spain, because Spain is where those Spanish, some of the earliest colonial documents come, where the land deeds come from, right? But he has a little problem, and this is a problem all land grant people have found it have, have encountered, is that, well, didn't you guys steal it from the Indians in the first place? Right? And Theodina's um result or his his solution to this this problem is to say we're Indian too. And the truth is that in New Mexico there is a lot of racial mixing. It's just that Theodina is one of the people who's most willing to come be forthright about it. Because in New Mexico too, there is, um, for all sorts of political reasons, it makes sense that if you're dealing with a new, like the entering United States that has its own racial hierarchies and white is right and best and most powerful, you're going to say like, oh yeah, I come from Spanish conquistadores. Right? Are you, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a strategic utility to claiming whiteness. He claims an elite, um, a, a connection to Spain, definitely, but that is not all. At the same exact time, he is forging connections or trying his best to forge connections to Native Americans because he says that Native Americans are really the only um, group that understands what it means to have your land taken away. They are the group that has been deprived by treaty. Like they, too, face broken treaties. So he feels a powerful connection to Native Americans. And this is where he comes up with in the Hispano. And when people say like, well, you're just wanting land that you guys stole in the first place, he goes, hey, don't blame me for the crimes of Spain. The Indian is our mother. And just so that you are now completely confused, at other times he says, if he's talking to a Spanish journalist, journalist he'll say, oh yeah, Spain is our mother. And when he's in Mexico, Mexico, we are all the children of Mexico. So you really have to slice them carefully to get a handle on this guy. But by 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 66, 67, he is an Indo-Hispano. And that's the term he actually prefers. That's a term that he sticks with. He he really thinks that he figured this out. Um the courthouse raid, however, it, and here I'm going against some some of the literature. A lot of people say like Eh, Theodina, not a lot, but I mean, not a lot of people written on Theodina, but we'll say, yeah, he was like, he was recognized, like people paid attention to him, young Chicanos paid attention to him, but he was not really ever part of the Chicano movement, 
he wasn't young. He didn't like Atslan. He didn't, you know, he, he was something separate apart. And it's also convenient because he's so weird in so many ways, right? Like we don't have to, we don't have to count him. And it's like, that's not what they were saying in 67, right? Members of the Chicano movement looked at this guy, political activists, and again, mapping onto Mexican-American politics more broadly, you have the rise of the Chicano movement. It is not about politely petitioning the U.S. government. It's about demanding rights and um, what I call in an earlier book, the politics of confrontation, right? It's a cultural nationalist movement. And then you have the arena not just proving himself a militant by picking up a gun and raiding a county courthouse, but also speaking to this aching need among Chicanos, like, can we please pay attention to our history? Can we please be, in, like, instead of like, you're immigrants and you need to just get with the, the Americanization programs, like, we've actually been here a long time. We have a rich culture. Like, can we honor it? Can we see that as a political resource? So he is someone who shows up in all the Chicano movement papers as a hero. He's someone who's interviewed by, um, you know, nationally by by all sorts of people, but specifically he becomes a hero to the Chicano movement. So one of the latter chapters talks about Dana as a Chicano and um, what were his actions at the, what was his role in the people's, um, poor people's campaign in Washington, D.C.? So he's a, I have to say he's not a, he's recognized the Chicano. He certainly appreciates appreciates the adulation. He works um, to develop special relations, not just with Native Americans, but also with African Americans. But I don't think he's a really good Chicano at some level. At some level, he what he really wants is people in the Chicano movement to listen to him, right? It, it's, it's a, it's kind of a, He's happy to get the attention. He's happy that he finally has gotten a platform. In fact, after the courthouse raid, he thinks he has a platform not just for land grants, but for um, cultural change, for like, for establishing a much broader vision of justice as he sees it. The title he's happy to adopt, but he's still on his. He's still following his own program. And I think that's uh, such a fascinating internal perspective to the fluctuating kind of identities that people across the Southwest and, and in other parts of the country were having as well in kind of this pivotal 60s, 70s moment. Shifting gears a little bit now that we're coming toward the end, um, I think a lot of us, you know, would love to hear a little bit about your process, writing mm-hmm. a biography um, and in particular, you mentioned that you interviewed Reyes Lopez Tijerina himself. And I'm sure, you know, I personally would love to hear what it was like meeting with him. Mm. That man is, that man was powerful. That man was very powerful. So, and he also spoke with a, with a heavy duty accent. It made sense that he really enjoyed speaking Spanish more. Um, It was it was just it was interesting because I think that accent got in the way sometimes of his communication with journalists. Right? I think that's one reason he may have been dismissed, actually. I'm not sure, but it just seems that might be part of it. Um, so I went to visit it's actually I have to give a shout out to my graduate students because I really, especially after knowing all this stuff, like having these interviews and then finding corroborating evidence in the archives, I really did not want to go and interview him. And in 2010, when I went and did that, there was no, as far as I could tell, any oral history guidance on, you know, what do you do with these sort of allegations? How do you handle it? So I, it was my graduate students who said, like, you just got to go and talk to him. I'm like, oh, man. So I did. Um, and I'm glad I did. He, um, you, you, it's just that Diana takes charge. And it's really funny if you, you look at, like, any court transcript. You have lawyers, even his own defense lawyers, trying to ask him a question. He's going to answer whatever the hell he wants to answer. And he's going to give you maybe a 400-year rendition on land-grant history. You know what I mean? Or later in his life, you know, uh, the five reasons why Jewish people are out to take over the globe. Like, he's going to tell you what he thinks you need to hear, not what you want to come with. So um, I went and I asked him, I said, there's some things in 
there's you have a collection. I've looked at it very carefully. There's some things that um, aren't in that collection, and I want to write a history of the Alianza. And he he just looks at me, goes Lorena, and it's really that kind of like deep voice, Lorena. I was the Alianza, and okay. And then he starts talking to me about the super dream, the one that convinces him to leave Arizona as a prophet and move to New Mexico as a land grant activist in excruciating detail. And then he tells me that um, he looks at the date that um, Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated on June 5th, 1968. And as far as the was concerned, the man got what he was coming because he kept ignoring the earlier in his life. So it's an anniversary of the courthouse, right? Like he's a, he really is a numerology, he's someone who looks at numerology. He's always trying to discern meaning. Like Irina in his entire life was always trying to like figure out what God had for him. And sometimes it went to numerology. Sometimes it went to um, super dreams. So all of it is just like this fire hose of information that I had already heard or read about a hundred times before. And so what I needed to do was to find out about these allegations of sexual abuse and of domestic and uh, violence, like uh, his he had a heavy hand, and so I didn't know how to do that, and I didn't have any guidance from oral history, and it just so happened that um, as I was interviewing him, his daughter Rachel Dirina called, and um, she's the second oldest daughter, and she was the person who. Um, at the time was getting along really well with him. And it turns out she lived in Las Cruces, New Mexico. I was interviewing Tierina in El Paso, New Mexico. So it's only, I think, less than an hour away, the drive. So I said like, oh, can we go talk to Rachel? I didn't have a plan, but I thought if we just got the family together, maybe stuff would come out. So the next day I picked up Tierina and his third wife, Esperanza, and we went to Rachel's house. And Tirina continued to talk. It was actually, it's, it's hard to overemphasize how consumed he was with his conviction that Jews were going to take over the world. Um, it, it was like, a, again, a fire hose all the way from El Paso to Las Cruces. And I thought what would happen was it, I thought if I just let him talk, maybe he'll get it out of his system. And I, I actually deal with anti-Semitism in the book, but I don't really like hearing someone on an anti-Semitic screed, right? That's not, that's, it, 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 it was hard. And then we got to um, Rachel's house and we had dinner. Oh, I'm sorry, we didn't. We, we gathered in ideally oral history just for reasons of recording. It's nicer when it's one person in a room and quiet. This was more of a conversation. But eventually... Reyes Tirina, he himself brought up Rose Tirina's allegations because, as he put it, quote, she has talked all over the state, unquote. And he had his version of what happened in Mexico all those years ago. And I thought, okay, at the very least, what I have accomplished here is I have, like, like at least allowed him a chance to address the allegations. And I have a tape and it's like, uh, Mr. Tirina, I, you know, I, I'm kind of working without any uh, particular training. This isn't a typical situation, but I really thought about it and it seemed like the fairest thing to do is to get your side of the story, right? And um, his side of the story is actually what underscores the patriarch. Both versions, they're different. They conflict, but at the end, this man really thought he had certain rights as the father. And then, so I'm ready to exhale and we have a meal. And then he, um, turns out he was furious at me. Well, I brought up a really tender subject and he loved Rose and the two were, hadn't spoken for a long time. And he just starts yelling at me. Um, launching all sorts of accusations that I had a hidden agenda. Um, I heard third hand that Rachel might've thought I was a spy, but she was really sweet to me. If that was the case, she was super sweet. Um, and as he got more and more infuriated, I was eating lunch with Rachel Tiri and his second eldest daughter, her daughter, 
Esperanza, his third wife, and another person. I'm sorry, I don't think I remember. It was all women. And all these women, like on cue, disappear from the room. And they leave me with this extremely angry man. And so he yells at me. And um, one of the things he, like he, he keeps telling me, Lorena, I know you. And that, like, he knew my hidden agenda, which was to make him look, make him look bad, right? And so I just answered back. I was like, you don't know me. And what was so funny is, like, it was an explosion that came, and then it went. And then when it was over, and I'd been thoroughly yelled at, the women come in and pretend nothing has happened. Except on the side, Rachel pulls me out. Are you okay? Are you okay? And she tells me it's, it's all in the book. Like, yes, he used to beat us really bad. Yes, Rose broke his heart. All I mean, and I just have to tell you that the it was a very long ride back from Las Cruces to El Paso because he he was ready to switch gears. He was ready to tell me some more about genealogy and um, a numerology and the Jews. I'm putting that in quotation because that's what he always that's how he put it. The Jews. Um, Esperanza was shooting me daggers. That's all. I mean, she was, she is on tape saying, ya reyes, ya reyes, reyes, por favor, like trying to control what he was saying, but no one could ever control. When Thierino was speaking, he was the one in control, right? So it was an interesting um, episode. He was ready to see if I would write, you know, what he considered much more, his conspiracy theories. He thought that was much more important. And I, I only saw him that one time. I'd seen him before at the 40th anniversary of the Cortez, right? I never saw him again. And he died in 2015. So, I mean, you can tell from the time frame, it took me a long time to figure out how to stitch all of this together. And I think I did it. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I think the book, it took, I mean, I'm especially proud of the epilogue because it just tells you what happened and why it's important and, yeah, it's not just about the arena. It's really a meditation on history and what we do as historians and how we weigh evidence and why our work matters. So that's part of the inside scoop, I suppose. And I think you just can absolutely convinced everyone listening to read through the whole entire book because that was just completely like, captivating. I really would appreciate it. Um, <laughs> I would, and I, I mean, it's silly, but it's not, I don't know if it's silly, but it's, I am, I'll just say it flat out, I am extraordinarily proud of this book. I feel like I did something that no one's been able to do for 50 years. And I did it by dealing with really horrible allegations. So I unlike the arena by centering women. And there are people who write, there are like women historians I know have written about sexual abuse and these sort of allegations. And I know there's a lot of people who've written biographies of male leaders, right? I've never seen a biography that centers women's experience is absolutely crucial to understanding this man. And I, I, that's, that's what I needed to do. It took me a long time to get to it, but yeah. And the, I really like the format. I like all the, I like every single chapter. It says one piece of this complicated guy. I mean, you know, he's someone who hung out with someone who was a former inmate in a, an insane asylum. Or um, what is the formal title? Uh, State prison for the mentally insane, I think, is a former title. That was one of his chief advisors. I mean, is there a reason people looked at the idea and said, mm, I'm not going to touch that? And I got in, I think what happened is because of the women's stories, I just couldn't not touch it. I couldn't, I couldn't, I think, I think it's in the, I couldn't look away. So there you go. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us all of your process and findings and experiences. Before we close, uh, I'm sure our listeners would also love to know what you're working on next. I'm working on it. What I'm, I'm calling it my deep exhale or um, my cultural enrichment. It's actually lovely. Um, so Beacon Press has a series, and I'm sure many of your listeners are um, familiar with it, Revisioning the American Past. And in that series, Paul Ortiz has already written a book called 
an African-American Latinx history of the United States. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz has written an indigenous people history of the United States. Um, there's also a disability history of the United States, a queer history of the United States. The, for me, um, I'm going to be writing a Mexican history of the United States. And the reason I'm calling it a deep exhale is because for this Theodina book, I had to take always so many pieces of information, many of which would say exactly the opposite thing and try to make sense of it, right? That was Theodina. He would, he just spoke so much and so fast and in so many different directions. And take that archival work and those that, that primary source material. For this one, I have taught Mexican-American history for 20 years. I just get to read everything that I need to catch up on. I have like two years worth of reading to catch up on. Um, that's what, you know, when I was really busy trying to finish those work. Read deeply and I get to participate in, in instead of a look at um, a, a biography of a single human being, I get to look at the sweep of Mexican-American history. And the idea behind the series is that there's a lot of people who are never going to read monographs in Chicano Chicano history, but they might be curious about Mexican-American history in general. They might pick up one book. This is a book they should pick up. That's the idea behind the series. And so I'm going to be looking at the sweep of Mexican-American history and I think it's always about 200, 250 pages or less. That's what I'm up to right now. Well, I can't wait to pick up that book once it's out. And Thank once you. again, listeners, we've been talking to Dr. Lorena Oropesa about her brand new book, The King of Adobe, Reyes Lopez Tijerina, Lost Prophet of the Chicano Movement, out now from the University of North Carolina Press. Lorena, thank you so much for being with us here on New Books in Latino Studies. Thank you, Jaime, for the invitation and for the chance to chat. And congratulations on the podcast. You guys are all doing good work. We appreciate it, and we appreciate your scholarship. <laughs>